This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Hello. I found out a while ago I was singing over the mic. There you go. So, um, I want to first of all say a very special good morning to those of you who have uh, tapped in online. Uh, Welcome to church, and uh, I want to ask you to do something that I think will greatly enhance your uh, viewing experience. If you will kind of set aside everything else that you're doing and focus in on what we're going to do over the next few minutes, then I think God will meet you in the space where you are, whether that's on Sunday morning and you're viewing live or tapping in later in the week. For those of you in the auditorium, you guys are double dipping. Did you know that? Because you're getting everything that you could get online, plus you're getting person-to-person connection. And that's pretty good, don't you think? Yeah, that's awesome. So uh, we're going to learn some things today. We are in this uh, Christmas cameos thing, and I, I, I just have a concept I want you to sit with for a minute. And I want you to ask yourself, what is a cameo? What's a cameo appearance? And maybe for context, to ask yourself, what's the difference between a cameo appearance in a movie and a movie extra? Because there is a huge difference, and there's a reason why we have not called this extras in the Christmas story. It's Christmas cameos. So having said all of that, Let's jump into the Christmas story itself, and we're going to go to Matthew's documentary and read a short excerpt from what the ancient writer Matthew said about the Christmas story and recorded for us. And it sort of sets the scene for the whole Christmas story. This is an angel speaking, and the angel is speaking to Joseph, who is the fiancé of Mary, who is going to become the mother of Jesus. And the angel says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, Joseph is grappling and struggling with this idea that his fiancée has just told him that she is pregnant, and he's going, I didn't do it. I got a problem with this, as we all would. And the angel appears and says, hey, Joseph, I want to remind you of something that the prophet Isaiah said 600 years ago. And here it is. A virgin is going to conceive. This is a sign for you. So, Joseph, don't be completely surprised Because this has been on God's calendar for more than 600 years now. And the angel is saying to Joseph, Joseph, I need you to get on board with God's plan. Now, so much for that side of the story. What this is actually saying is that God is about ready to show up on earth because this, this son that's going to be born is going to have this 
persona about him that's so deep and so rich and so wise and so profound and so wonderful that the people are going to look at him and they are going to say, that's why it says, they, the people, will call his name Emmanuel because they will have a sense that God is with them. And that is the Christmas story. It is heaven's royalty coming to earth. God's about ready to write a story that's going to dwarf every story in human history. And I think oftentimes we, we just don't take the time to grasp the enormity of the story that God was about to write. Do you realize that when God showed up on earth as Jesus, and Jesus said, I'm going to build my church, that what he was actually saying is, I'm going to found the largest enterprise in human history. And just because I'm God, I'm going to do it in three years. How big is the largest enterprise in human history? Well, let's compare it to some enterprises that you and I know. Joel made reference to Starbucks. By the way, I don't know anyone who drinks coffee at Starbucks for a whole week for five bucks. <laughs> I love Joel, but he needs to go to math class. <laughs> I'm of a mind to believe if you gave up Starbucks for a week, you could go take a $50 tag. All right. Having said that, how big... Let's take Starbucks. You know how many Starbucks outlets there are, stores that there are? There's 32,938 as of earlier this week. That's a lot, right? Look what's next. McDonald's, 39,198. Subway, 41,600. 7-Eleven, 70,200 of those 7-Eleven stores. They're everywhere, right? Whoa, those are mega corporations. Do you know how many church buildings, not church congregations, how many church buildings there are in the world? Over 20 million. The enterprise that Jesus founded dwarfs all other enterprises. God was about to write a story that's so staggeringly huge, it's hard to even comprehend. If you throw in all the churches, like we have a Haitian church that meets in here on Saturdays. They don't have their own building. They wouldn't be one of the 20 million. They are one of the over 30 million churches. You realize you can put Starbucks, McDonald's, Subway, and 7-Eleven together, and there's still 167 churches for every one of those. It's phenomenal. And oh, by the way, if you think Amazon is huge, and it is, I have a little challenge for you, okay? Come back in 2,000 years and see how big Amazon is then. That's amazing, isn't it? The enterprise that Jesus built. Now, that's a great thing. But by the way, that actually helps my faith. 
to realize only God could do that. No human could ever do that. But there's a flip side to that that you and I need to be aware of. And that is because the enterprise of Jesus is so huge, there's a tendency that you and I might have to devalue our own story. Because I'm just one of, are you ready for this? Statisticians tell us that there have been approximately 107 billion people that have ever graced planet Earth. And you and I, I'm one of 107 billion. That's pretty small, don't you think? And there's this tendency that we have to think, I don't really make a difference. You know what we're actually saying? I'm just an extra in the story of Jesus. I looked up what a cameo is. A cameo is a brief appearance in a movie by someone important. Huh. So here's God's goal for you and me. Take a look at it. God's goal is that we would all have cameo roles in the big story of Jesus and not just be extras in the background. Are you on board with that? That's the deal, okay? And so when we read through this list of Jesus' ancestors, it's, these are all cameo appearances by people who were important. But anytime we talk about faith, it brings into question two things, God's existence and his nature. So let's, let's play some if-then things, okay? First of all, if God doesn't exist, then faith is a delusion. You and I might as well believe in Superman, Batman, or Wonder Woman. That's not faith. What is that? Fantasy. Okay? So if God doesn't exist, it's all fantasy anyway. But what if God exists and he's not actually for us? He's actually against us. If that's our image of God and God's against us, then faith, our faith is actually toxic. We are trying to convince ourselves to be vulnerable to someone and trust someone who's actually out to harm us. And the results are catastrophic. It's like the countless children in our world who trust their abusive parents. And it destroys them. Because if God is against us, then faith is toxic. If God is neutral, if he's just disengaged, if God is distant, if he's, if he's detached from us, then faith is meaningless. He's never going to act on our behalf. If he's just a celestial judge who sits out there and monitors our behavior and then comes down on us from time to time, then our faith is meaningless because God's never actually going to move on our behalf. But if God exists and he is for us, then faith is dynamic because it changes everything in our lives. And we go over this time and time again. The message of Scripture 
is not only that God exists, but that God is for us. And for us in a big way. And then that leads to another question, and that is, if God is for us, to what extent is God for us? Is he mildly for us? Or is he wildly for us? There's a big difference between those. And you know, there's some dimensions to this thing of God's love and care for us. And the first and basic dimension is this. If God is for us, does that mean he loves us and cares about us? What do you think the answer to that is? Yeah. The verse that almost all of us can quote, for God so, what's the next word? Loved, yes. So we can rest assured that God is for us at least to the extent that he loves us and cares about us. Then last week, Joel laid out a brilliant case for another dimension to God's love, that God is not only for us and cares for us, but he is for us to the point that he would forgive the brokenness and mess in our lives, no matter what it is. Because that's a whole other dimension to love. And that's about God's grace and his willingness to forgive. But this morning, I want to postulate that there is a third dimension to God's love that doesn't get a lot of press. And yet it should. It's on page after page of Scripture. And that is, is God for us to the extent that he not only cares about us and is willing to forgive us, but is he for us to the extent that he wants to reward us and delights in honoring us? Wow. That's huge. Now, there's a sentiment in our world that definitely goes against this. I think we're skeptical of that third dimension of God's love because I know you can finish these statements. Let's put them up here on the screen. No good deed goes what? Unpunished. Well, that doesn't sound like God's for us and going to reward us. No. And nice guys finish where? Last. Yeah, yeah. We say we look around our world. It doesn't seem like God is a rewarder. In fact, we have this sentiment and the skepticism that says, I'm not sure that's the case. So the question for today is this. Should we go through life believing that God will notice the good we do and reward us for it? Should this be our posture in life? And so we're going to take a look at what that means. It actually is on page after page of Scripture, and I've just selected one from the ancient writer of, of the section in your Bible called Hebrews, and let's take a look at what this writer has to say. It is impossible to please God without faith, because anyone who wants to come to Him must believe two things. Number one, that God exists, and number two, that He is a rewarder. Would you read those, those yellow words out loud with me? He is a rewarder. Let's do it again. He is a rewarder. It's in his nature of those who sincerely seek him. I just want to confess that's actually one of my favorite verses in Scripture. Because it helps give context to my life 
every day. Now, this is all about cameos in the Christmas story. So we're going to go back to Matthew's documentary. And when we're reading this list of people who are in the lineage of Jesus, here's the excerpt that we're going to focus on this morning. It says, Now Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And you and I could fly right through that and, okay, who's next? It just seems like, well, okay, I guess there's a dude by the name of Boaz. And there's a dude by the name of Obed and a dude by the name of Jesse and some fishy guy, Salmon, right? And that's probably all we know. But fortunately for us, Boaz's story is captured in a book in the Old Testament of the Bible, in the Jewish Bible. His story is captured in in a section called Ruth. And so we're going to go back and we're going to jump into that story and I'll give you some backstory and then we're going to work our way through the story and we're going to learn one thing today. So um, let's go back to the story. It says, now Naomi had a rich relative named Boaz from Elimelech's family. Okay, so in this story, the two initial characters are a Jewish couple. They're a young Jewish couple, and that's Elimelech and Naomi. They're married, and God blesses them with two little boys, Malon and Kilion. And they live in the Bethlehem area, and unfortunately, a famine comes to that area of the country And they decide they have to leave because if they stay there, it's not going to go well for them. So they pick up stakes. You know where that comes from? They all lived in tents. Okay. They pick up stakes and they decide to move to Moab. And they move to Moab. (coughs) And in Moab, the famine is not there. So life goes well for them. And Malon and Kilion to finish raising them. And it gets time for them to get married. And Elimelech and Naomi, because all marriages in that culture were arranged, Elimelech and Naomi make arrangements to marry Malon and Kilion uh, to two Moabite women. One was named Orpah and the other's name was Ruth. Everything is going well in the story until tragedy hits and actually not just one tragedy but three. Not long after... Uh, these boys are married. Their dad, we don't know what happened to him, but he died. And not long after that, Malon dies. And not long after that, Kilion dies. So now we have Naomi and Orpah and Ruth, three widows living in Moab. And there's no provision for widows. Well, actually, there is one provision for widows, and that is you have to go back to your family of origin, and it's their obligation to take care of you because you're family. If you're young enough, perhaps they can arrange another marriage for you. But if you're not young enough, well, they just got to take care of you. You go back, they, they put an addition on the tent or whatever they do, and there you go. So Naomi says to Orpah and Ruth, look, it's either beg on the streets here or go back to my home. So I'm headed back to Bethlehem, 
And you two ladies need to go to your homes of origin here in Moab because if you come with me, nothing good can happen for you. No Israelite will marry their son to you. You'll never get married. You'll live all of your lives as widows. And oh, by the way, if you're a foreigner in Israel, you have zero human rights. None. Because the culture in Israel at that time was foreigners were usually raped and regularly. It was violent, godless culture, really. And she says, don't come, don't, don't come back with me. It's not going to go well for you. Wow. So Orpah decides to go back to her family of origin. But it's in this context that Ruth makes this impassioned speech to her mother-in-law. And I want, I want to read it to you because this is what Ruth said. She said to Naomi, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and what? Your God will be my God. There's something in Ruth that was drawn to the God that Naomi worshipped. When she compared it to the idols of Moab, this God who created the heavens and the earth, this God who provided for people, this God who was considered the father of the human race was so different from the angry idols that she was used to worshiping. And she said, I don't want to go back to that. I want your God to be my God. Now listen, question of the morning is this. Does God see that? And will he reward her? Because that's a huge risk. She's going back to live in a country where she has no human rights and virtually no chance to ever get married. She will die a childless widow. But if she can be with God, she's okay with that. Hmm. So, Ruth and Naomi head back to Bethlehem. And Naomi goes to her family, and her family says, Oh, Naomi, it's so good to see you. She goes, Oh, 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 oh. Don't call me Naomi. From now on, my name is Mera, which means bitter. You know, if you're choosing a name, that should not be at the top of the list. She said, call me Mera. Look at this. Are you ready? Because the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. That's not the voice of faith. That's the voice of anger and bitterness. Now, it still blows my mind. In spite of her attitude, Ruth still wants her God. That's pretty amazing, don't you think? Yeah. So, let's pick up the story here. One day, Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, I'm going to the fields. Maybe someone will be kind enough to let me gather the grain he leaves behind. And Naomi said, go, my daughter. So Ruth went to the fields and gathered the grain that the workers cutting the grain had left behind. Now, 
as God set up the ancient nation of Israel, he made three provisions for the poor. Number one, he said to all of you landowners, when you harvest your grain, do not harvest the corners of the field. Round it off and you leave whatever is in the corners for the poor so they have something to eat. Number two, when you're harvesting your grain or picking grapes or picking olives or whatever, whatever you drop, do not stoop and pick up again. You leave that for the poor. And number three, when you're picking grapes or olives or harvesting the grain, you go over the field or the vineyard or the olive grove one time, and you don't go over it a second time. Whatever you miss the first time through, you leave for the poor. So Naomi, so Ruth says, I'm going to go out in the field. I'm going to, I'm going to harvest the corners if they'll let me. And I'm going to follow the workers and whatever they drop, I'm going to go and pick up so that my mother, my bitter mother-in-law and I can have something to eat. She's pretty good. Is God going to notice this? And will he reward her? Huh. As we read on in the story, it just so happened that the field Ruth randomly chose belonged to whom? Boaz. There he is. And what we're going to find out is that Boaz, in, the, in spite of the fact that he lived in this mostly godless culture and violent culture and sexually charged culture, that Boaz has decided to live on a different path. He actually believes and has ordered his entire life around a truth that he believes that God will notice the good he does and will reward him. Now, let me just say right now, this is not about salvation. You can't earn a place in heaven that's given to you by Jesus. But there's this whole other side of God that's not about salvation. It's about honoring and rewarding us. Boaz, a thousand years before Jesus came, believes that God is noticing the good he does and will reward him. So now we have two people in this field, both of whom are seeking God against massive odds. And let's see what happens. Soon Boaz came from Bethlehem and greeted his workers. The Lord be with you. And the workers answered, may the Lord bless you. Don't you love the culture he made on his farm? That, by the way, that was not normal greeting. Not at all. Not in Boaz's day. But here's this culture of faith in God. So then Boaz looks over his field, and this is what's next. He asks his servant in charge of the workers, uh, whose girl is that? Well, the servant answered, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said to us, please let me follow the workers cutting grain and gather what they leave behind. And... She came and has remained here from morning until just now, and she has stopped only a few moments in the shelter. Now, in that conversation, Boaz learns two things about this girl in his field. Number one, he learns she's a hard worker. She came, she asked, 
And she has worked continually resting only for a few minutes. And number two, she's from Moab, which means she has no human rights and no protection in this country. Let's see how Boaz responds. Then Boaz said to Ruth, listen, my daughter. Do you know how unusual that is? For a Jewish man to say to a foreign woman to call her his daughter? That's a term of endearment. To Boaz, it makes no difference whether a person is a Jew or a foreigner. They're people. And all people deserve to be treated well. Listen, my daughter. Don't go to gather grain for yourself in another field. Don't even leave this field at all. But continue following closely behind my women workers. <coughs> Watch to see into which fields they go to cut grain and follow them. I have warned the young men not to bother you. And when you are thirsty, you may go and drink from the water jugs the young men have filled. So kind, so nice, someone who does good. Look at Ruth's response. Ruth says this, she bowed low with her face to the ground and said to him, I'm not an Israelite. Why have you been so kind as to notice me? And I want you to see in Boaz's response, this underlying principle of faith that God not only exists, but that God is a rewarder of those who sincerely seek him. Take a look at what Boaz says. So Boaz answered her, I know about all the help you have given your mother-in-law after your husband died. You left your father and your mother and your own country to come to a nation where you didn't know anyone. And look what he says next. May the Lord what? Reward you. Oh, look at that. For all you have done and may your wages be paid in full by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for shelter. What's driving this goodness in Boaz? This understanding that he has been created to do good and that God will reward the good that he does in life. And he's not done yet. Look at what he says to Ruth next. I'm sorry, not to Ruth. Boaz commanded his workers, let her gather even around the piles of cut grain and don't tell her to go away. In fact, drop some full heads of grain for her. For, you know, clumsy me up. There's another one I dropped. And from what you have in your hands and let her gather them and don't tell her to stop. So how does this story play out? Well, let's go back to Matthew's commentary and documentary on Jesus. And let's read a little fuller version of that excerpt. Here's what it says. Now, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of whom? King David, Israel's most beloved king. This story plays out like a Hallmark movie. Minus the cheese. 
It's such a great movie. Boaz and Ruth fall in love and they get married. And God blesses them with a son. And God blesses them with a grandson. And God blesses them with a great-grandson who becomes the most beloved and most famous king in all of Israel's history. This is how Boaz moved from being an extra in the story of Jesus to being a cameo in the story of Jesus. A brief appearance, but by someone important. Remember the question of the day, should we go through life with this posture that God is not only going to notice, but record everything, every good thing that we do, and that God is going to reward us? Now, I want, again, I want to warn us against, this is not a one-for-one thing. It's not like I can go out in the lobby and hug six people and say, okay, God, what are you going to do for me now? That's not how it works. The when, the where, and the how of God's reward are always left up to him. Where faith comes in is when you and I believe that even when we do good and no one notices that God does, and that he will reward. It's on page after page of Scripture. I just want to point you to something Jesus said, and let's read it on the screen. He said this, I, the Son of Man, will one day return with my messengers and in the splendor and majesty of my Father, and then I will what? I will reward each person according to what they have done. Wow. It's in there on page after page. Here's the real lesson that we can learn from Boaz and from Ruth and these cameos in the story of Jesus. And take a look. God notices and keeps a record of every good thing we do. And he's preparing a personal reward for us based on each of the good deeds And I don't have time to get into this teaching of Scripture, but they have to be motivated out of genuine love and done in a context of humility. I can't go out here and do something good and toot my own horn and say, okay, God, I'm out of breath. You blow my horn for a while. That's not how it works. Done out of love, done in the context of humility, there's this wonderful thing that God does. The ancient writer Paul points us to a truth that I would like to close with. Take a look. We, you and I, are God's masterpiece. And if you go back into the original language, the word for masterpiece there, are you ready? It's poema. What English word do we get from that? Poem, yeah. We are the story God is writing in poetic form, and it is a masterpiece. Now notice, created anew in Jesus, that's that's this new birth, this fresh start we get in life, when we choose to follow Jesus to do what? Good works. Now listen, if you forget everything else I said today, I want you to remember this. You and I 
We're not created to just be good. We were created to do good. You can sit and be good. I don't do this and I don't do that and I stay away from this and I'm good. But you weren't created just to be good. You and I were created to do good. Take a look at this sign that hangs in our house. I love this sign. I'm sure I'm not the only grandparent with this idea, okay? When God made my grandchildren, he was just showing off. One of my favorite signs ever, okay? Every grandparent feels like that, right? Of course. You know why? Because you're proud of who your grandchildren are. Do you think God feels that way about us? Do you think that in heaven, God's conversation with the angels and the other heavenly beings, do you think it ever goes something like this? Take a look at my kid, George. That's some kid. I'm so proud of him. Look, look what he's doing. And no one knows. But George doesn't care because George is just a guy who does good. When he wakes up in the morning, it's what what are the good things I can do today? It's not a Boy Scout. I did my good deed for this day. No offense to any Scouts, okay? No, it's what good things can I do? Listen, when you and I are doing good, when we're walking across the parking lot to take a grocery cart and, pu- and push it up to where it belongs, from where someone carelessly left it, when you and I are opening the door for someone, when you and I stoop to pick up something that someone else dropped, when you and I give a Kleenex to someone who's having a tough time, no matter what we're doing, listen, when you and I are doing good, we are part of God's masterpiece created in Jesus to do what? Good works. That's our job. And in this Christmas season, and way beyond this Christmas season, let's dedicate ourselves to this concept of I will get up every day and I will fill my day with doing good for other people. Anybody, anywhere, anytime. I will just do good. And I will do it in the context of faith and trust that my good, good father is going to see, he's going to notice, he's going to take pride in what I've chosen to do. And at the right time and in the right place, he will reward me and I will be richly blessed. Would you stand with me as we pray and get ready to sing a prayer? Father, we stand in your presence and we confess you're a good, good father. And and so often we fall so short of actually comprehending the extent to which you are so good to us. 
And God, would you save us from doing good so that we can be noticed, which would only lead to our own pride. And would you call us to do good because we genuinely love people and we genuinely care about them and to forgive them as you forgive us and to honor and bless them as you honor and bless us. And would you help us to do that in the context of faith that teaches us that in spite of our brokenness, in spite of our own struggles, that you will honor us anyway. God, grow our faith today as we sing to you, you're a good, good father. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.